Would you all pray with me? Generous God, bring your word near to us this morning. May it rest not only on our lips, but let it also reside in our hearts. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to respond to your word with our whole, whole lives until you become our dwelling place. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this morning, we are shifting gears in our liturgical season, as Pastor Jeff mentioned. We are in the season of Lent. And during the season of Lent, our theme will be returning to God with all of your heart. I don't know about you, but I feel as though I have been pulled away from God over the past few weeks. I haven't really felt close to God. I've prayed, I've studied scripture, I've written sermons, I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do, all the things that you expect me to do as your pastor. But at the same time, in my heart, I've felt kind of distant. I have felt anger and I have felt animosity towards my siblings in Christ. I have felt the need to do something, perhaps physically against someone, I haven't done that yet. If I do, I have Todd on retainer and I'll be fine. <laughs> but this is a season where I think for the United Methodist Church, Lent could not have come soon enough. We feel separated. We feel divided from one another. And when we are divided from one another, we are divided from God. We may feel even as though God has abandoned us. So as the spring bulbs begin to pop up and bloom, and it's that time of year where we don't know if it's fall, winter, spring. Apparently this afternoon it's going to feel like August. But over the next 40 days, as all of that's happening, we're going to turn towards the tomb. We're going to turn towards the empty tomb that was discovered by two women, where three days prior, our crucified Messiah was buried. And as we do that, we are going to regain our love of God, we're going to find God's generous heart and we're going to find how we as a community, though we feel we are separated um, from the larger body of Christ and even from one another, how we can rejoin Christ's united church. You know, before we took on the name Methodists and before we started reading the sermons, which are poorly written by John Wesley, before we started sitting down for church conferences, before all of that, we were people who earnestly believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before there was traditional worship, before there was contemporary worship, before we had the polished brand new organ upstairs, and before we had sparkly guitars downstairs, we were communities centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are a resurrection community. So during the season of Lent, we're going to turn our hearts and our minds towards that promise. We are turning towards the empty grave. The stone has been rolled away, and we are preparing for God's glorious victory over sin and death. It may be hard to see how the stone could have ever been possibly moved away, but we faithfully anticipate God's movement. Just as we make preparations for the inbreaking of God's justice and mercy at the manger during Advent, Jesus promised promised us, promised his, the first church that evil, sin, and death would not have the final word. 
So like Israel wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, we're going to spend the next 40 days, not including Sundays, wondering. And wondering how the grace of God will be revealed to us as a community and as individuals. So this morning we find ourselves arriving at the promised land with Israel. It's been 40 years since they left the bonds of slavery in Egypt, led by Moses through the Red Sea, that cute story we tell our kids where the seas parted and the Israelites ran through and falling behind them was Pharaoh and the army and then the waves came crashing down, killing all of the Egyptian army. It's a great story to tell your kids right before they go to sleep. But that's where we're at. Was the covenant made between Abraham and Yahweh forgotten? Did Moses really encounter the Lord in a burning bush on the Sinai Peninsula? I mean, those are both legitimate questions. Questions that at least I would be asking and probably seriously considering having been walking around wandering through the wilderness with Moses. Because you know, after 39 years and 600 and, or 360 days, Israel was pretty dissatisfied with what was going on. You know, in Exodus 5, we read that their time in Egypt seemed easier than their time wandering with Moses. Exodus 14, 15, and 16 have the Israelites complaining about the taste of the water, complaining about the food, and then complaining about the lack of water. After 40 years, Israel finally arrived in the place God had promised to them. After 40 years, Israel finally had a place where they could rest. The weary could find peace. And after 40 years, they finally had a place that belonged to them. God's faithfulness had seen them through their time of wandering through the wilderness. And now, after they've rested from their travels They began to establish a new normal. And that's where we find the community responding to God's faithfulness by returning the first fruits of the harvest back to them. Now, don't get worried. I'm not going to talk about tithing. I'm not going to invite you to open your wallets and give more this morning unless it's to the youth missions, and then I want you to do that. Okay. This morning... We are talking about Israel responding to the faithfulness of God through an act of piety. Much like the acts of piety many of us will engage in during the Lenten season, Israel returning the first fruits of the harvest back to the Lord helped to draw them in closer to God by recalling God's own faithfulness to them. This liturgical movement mirrors many of the movements that would come later as the law, the law of Moses, would be established. And as the rites and the rituals of the community were codified on parchment and then in practice. These acts of the law, these acts of piety were deeply connected to not only Israel's identity, but it also served as a litmus test to determine a person's holiness. And if we're going to determine someone's holiness, it determines their acceptance before the Lord and, well, also in the community. You know, the law gets a bad rap. The law of Moses is not a bad thing then, and it's not a bad thing now. For a community coming out of an extended period of wandering, structure and routine provided by the law, those acts of piety prescribed by Moses, served as a new normal. And created a social identity for a community that desperately needed one. Prior 
to the moment of the first fruits of the harvest being given to the Lord, Israel was, Israel's identity was a wandering Armenian. Referring to that, that was Jacob. Jacob was a wandering nomadic shepherd, and he had never established roots in the way that Israel had just done. But the pattern of Israel's movement would continue. The satisfaction that they felt as they arrived in the promised land would not last forever. Israel would experience exile, more movement. They would also experience occupation. Separation from one another, yeah. But also separation from their ability to fulfill the law, to fulfill their identity during periods of great wandering. The law established Israel's identity, and it created a mechanism for them, for them to return gifts back to their generous creator, who saw Israel through times of trial and prosperity. And that, that's where the trouble began for the church in Rome. You know, Paul, in his letter, Paul's letters are date earlier than our Gospels. Paul wrote his letter to Rome before Matthew, or whoever Matthew was, wrote Matthew. So Paul is writing to address an issue of the law, acts of piety, and a person's worthiness of salvation. Do non-Jews, do the Greeks, do Gentiles, do people like us gathered here this morning need to adopt the law, the law of Moses? Do, Do Gentiles, do Greeks, do we here this morning need to practice the same act of piety as our siblings? who are Jewish, to receive God's promised salvation. Can anyone who is not a Jew, even if they've been circumcised, receive the assured salvation of Jesus Christ? Just as the law made Israel righteous before God, can those not observing the law, even though they're standing in the shadow of the empty tomb, can they be assured of their salvation? Are acts of the law and acts of piety, are they even necessary? At the end of the day, the question Paul is addressing is this. Who's in and who's out? Paul tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Full stop. There's no asterisks. There's no addendum. There's no referring us to anywhere else in the Bible. We're not told to check Romans 1, and we're not told to check Leviticus 18 to see who can and who cannot be fully included in the community of resurrection. Everyone, without hesitation, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation does not come from the law. It doesn't come from works of piety. The Lenten practices that you and I are adopting for the next five weeks will not make us more saved than the person we're sitting next to who's just going to go through the next 40 days like it was last week. The Lenten practice that you adopt this season, though, will open you to the righteousness of God and open you to experiencing the fullness of God as God reveals God's generous heart to you and to our community. During the Lenten season, we are wandering our way to the cross and we are making our way towards an empty tomb. It's a season where we wonder what will happen next. Will disagreements keep us divided? Will we continue to legislate law in a way that's contrary to Paul's declaration that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved? Because of the life 
death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Lenten practice will not make you more saved than you were on the other side of Ash Wednesday. The law, as Israel was following it, was not a bad thing. The law worked to produce righteousness and holiness in a time when Israel's identity was in limbo due to outside influencers that were beyond their own control. The law worked to offer the assurance of God's presence in a period of waiting on God to make good on promises that had been made. But as the story unfolds, we continue to see the generosity of God. We see the promises of God fulfilled as Israel established itself in the promised land and later returned after exile. Israel's response to God's generosity was to give thanks. Yet as the early church began to find its way, Israel's response to generosity and the ordering of the community, that was used to separate and exclude people from the body of Christ. Not by Israel, but by us, by followers of Christ. The early church and us today, we forget God makes extravagant promises, but God also keeps extravagant promises. We may have to wait, but as a resurrection community, we are able to enter into periods of wandering and wonder, knowing that God keeps promises that are made. It's not easy. Wander and wonder do not make good bedfellows, as we are finite creatures. And we have a tendency to keep our eyes on earthly promises. You know, winter will always give way to spring, even when it seems as though the cold and darkness want to hold on for one last surprise Friday afternoon snow. As we move closer to the miracle of Easter, we will find God's generous heart, not in the law, not in giving up social media or caffeine or junk food, but in the ever-expanding wideness of the kingdom of God. We will find what God has promised, and we will find what God has already made good on is more generous than anything any of us can imagine. A kingdom where all are invited to gather around the table. A kingdom where because of the grace and mercy and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we have all been reconciled and made righteous before God. The slint. It's my prayer that all of us would discover that God's generosity extends to the places where we once thought were out of reach. Because there's no longer a distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all and is generous to all who call on God. Thanks be to God. Amen.